Hello everyone and welcome to episode 3 of Required Reading, a film podcast. Um, it's a very great pleasure to have you here listening, um, very appreciative of that. Um, my name is Alex and we shall be discussing a movie called Personal Shopper. But before we get to that, say hello to Dan, the best co-person in the business, <laughs> Dan. Hello. I thought you said say hello, so I was just sitting and listening out for the audience to be saying hello. Anticipation. Which is probably weird if they're listening on a train or in yep. a very public space. <laughs> they just shout out hello to me. I can hear you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for the praise, effusive praise about my <laughs> co-hosting ability. You are very, very good. Um which I believe I've just undone in that entire section. Well, you know, you've, you've got time, time to get it back. Um, <laughs> we are a slightly different podcast to most. We have a few little rules, just so you get the maximum enjoyment out of this podcast. And uh, Dan will take them through you now. Yes, so there is a manifesto for the required reading colon, a film podcast, um, for our listeners. And it's and it's really for, for your benefit more than anything. Um, the full manifesto is included in every uh, episode description. And when I say full manifesto, don't worry, it's not a heavy read. It's just five fairly snappy bullets. The most important thing to note is that the film we are discussing, Personal Shopper, uh, we're discussing it from the perspective of someone who's just seen the film. Therefore, uh, you should be listening to it as someone who has also just seen or in the past seen the film, which is to say we will be discussing the film in detail, which means that spoilers abound this is your first and final warning, so don't come crying to us if we've ruined a film you haven't watched because you weren't listening. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, and more so than, I think, even if you were doing a podcast in the regular way, how could you review this movie in particular like any other way like, without giving away from moment one like w- what the film is? I, it's it's a strange film, Personal Shopper, isn't it? Let's just let's just get that out the door. Uh, it's a film who deals with a I guess various things. It is at once a, a supernatural story. Yeah. It's a uh, a murder mystery, sort of briefly. Uh, it's a thriller. It's a very sort of introspective piece about grief and loss. Yeah. A comment on the IM culture, the sort of texting yes. culture, like. You know, um, and it's a strange one because I think a lot of films would deal with person in fairly mundane circumstances, um, has supernatural powers, and I think a lot of films would play out that aspect in a sort of are they aren't they mould mm. um, right to the end. And, you know, an artsy film would leave you guessing. Were they mad or was it real? Um, and other ones would just have some sort of revelation at the end where it's like, yes, they had spiritual, you know, con- you know, the power to connect with spirits along. They were a genuine medium. Personal Shopper sort of dispenses with that aspect within a very, very short amount of time. Yeah. And arguably the film isn't about that at all. It just happens to be something that Kristen Stewart's character, uh, Maureen, can do. Yeah. And it's her connection to her brother. It does obviously drive one of the core premise of the film, which is that she is in Paris 
uh, in a bid to uh, connect with her dead brother. Yeah. Who died of a heart attack. They both have the same congenital heart defect, which has caused him to pass away at a very young 27. And because they were both able to contact the spirit world, they have a pact, which is whichever of them dies first um, has to leave a sign a signal that proves that there is life on the other side and that they are able to communicate with each other and so Kristen Stewart is in this period of extended grieving I guess where she's waiting for her brother to to leave her sign and I guess initially and ostensibly that's what the film's about yeah but it's not yeah it's it's so odds with itself even in the ideas of, of what happened in the movie, I feel it takes great sort of strides to make sure that almost everything is flipped on its head. So a sort of ghostly apparition, supernatural um, encounter is in a very flat, mundane, sort of dark, sort of the way that it's dealt with. Yes. But a text conversation is like an action movie or something. It's like the most exciting thing in the movie of all the things that happen yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Is, is what happened via text on a mobile phone, you know? And so it's, it, everything's completely at odds with itself. That's, uh, a, that's an excellent scene, actually. I mean, we are skipping to sort of the midway of the film, but that, that text exchange mm. takes place uh, back and forth on a, on a Eurostar journey yeah. into London and back. Um, and the, the entire scene like I mean, I mean the entire exchange probably lasts what about 10 minutes and yeah. it is just the back and forth of her waiting for these messages and turning off and uh and yeah it's 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 as you say it's it's quite interesting i've not really considered that till you mm. said it how it does um have such a mundane approach to the the appearance of the yeah. of the ghost mm. the the ectoplasm vomiting yeah. apparition. Apparition, which was handled really well, so yeah. done in a very cool way. And um, I actually missed... It happens right at the start of the movie, doesn't yes, it? Yes, there's, there's, there's a very brief appearance yeah. behind her on the wall. Yeah, which I kind of missed oh, the right. first time round. And I was watching with my wife, Vic, and she was like, oh, ooh, something kind of weird happened. And I went back and, uh, and had a look, and obviously it has reference to what happens later. But I like how, again... Normally, a supernatural encounter, you would wait like 20 minutes, something like that, in to, to sort of establish the character. That happens like so quickly before we've even had a chance to even hear anything that, that um, she's saying. Like the dialogue is so like sparse, it's at that really point. sparse at that point. Yeah. So already the film sets you up for, oh, cool. Like we've obviously named the film a certain way. That's your first expectation, sort of interaction with the movie. What what is it called? Right from the get go, you're like, how, like how is this going to connect? <laughs> you know, this is not what I was expecting, and it just continues to do that. Yeah. Sometimes to its detriment, I feel sometimes it was being is it idiosyncratic. Yes, is the right term. A bit for, for, quirky. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, and it did it a few too many times, like, but some some you're on board with, some you're not on board with, and it just sets out from beginning to end to sort of flip things on its head which I thought was really cool even the reading of like what happens at the end in the middle like there are like a few readings of it yes it, it first and foremost it has to exist on that first plane that first sort of layer and then adding in these other ones and even down to her sort of central performance 
how it's playing with how do we feel about sort of Kirsten Stewart? How do we in the movies we've seen before? And she looks like she'd lost some weight for the for the role. It looks yeah. like she'd sort of really sort of inhabited this sort of person that's in limbo, like a living limbo, trying to connect with yeah sort of afterlife limbo. And in in every way, we're sort of thinking of oh, what was the, the last film that we would have seen her in? Or although she has sort of moved into this indie territory, it's still like surprising at almost every turn. It's one of those films where you know critics will sort of erroneously, but will we'll say. She appears in every frame of the film. Mm. She practically appears in every frame of the film. Um, and to her credit, I think she's excellent. I think she's like remains completely captivating throughout it. Um, I think her sort of trademark, how would you describe it? Her, her, her sort of almost po-facedness, I guess. The, the, her, her sort of single expression that everyone seems to mock her for but yeah. she she really runs the gamut of emotions in this but there's clearly a lot of internal struggle on she expresses yeah. that fantastically well um and it's 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 peculiar what what they they do with her character i i, I just you've got someone who's sort of clearly incredibly damaged by mm. the loss of a brother but she's also in a sort of professional limbo as well she's yeah. clearly got these aspirations on the side of being an artist that she never really expresses she just does these sketches in mm. her own time and um but refuses to leave this role that she hates so much that she finds so deeply shallow um which is obviously the personal shopper mm. aspect of the title um going around buying all this or renting all of this incredible haute couture from yeah. various places purchasing jewelry from cartier you know going to london specifically to get outfits for photo shoots whatever yeah. for this you know incredible pain in the ass um sort of mystery celebrity we don't really know what she does apart from have some connections with a guerrilla charity. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's about all we ever find out about this about this other lady. But that other lady isn't important. It's yeah. sort of all of these things are just the kind of thrust of of why Kristen Stewart's in Paris and why mm. and why she she's doing what she's doing and she's she's recognised throughout by the people as being you know beautiful and and having i guess the appearance of a celebrity or a supermodel but yeah. sort of slumming it in in what she does um and so you know she's challenged by um kira the name of the celebrity mm, yeah. kira's um soon to be ex-boyfriend yeah um she's challenged by the outgoing. Per, the person outgoing boyfriend the person um who is sort of challenging her on the phone? Like, what does she want to be? A different person? Yeah. She she replies, um, which turns out to be maybe we don't know. Yeah, yeah. That that ex boyfriend mm. it, it could be, it could not be, because even that aspect is given a sort of ambiguity at yeah, a certain yeah. point in the film. Um, and so we we see her go through what we think might be a sort of. Uh, almost black swanish transition into wearing her clothes yeah. and feeling what it would be like to be in her position 
to the point that she's wearing her clothes, masturbating in her bed, yeah. you know, doing all these things where you think, oh, is it going to go a bit single white female? Is it going to go mm. you know, in sort of that direction? It doesn't really. It, it almost feels like that what she actually does is she tries that lifestyle because it's it's dangerous to her. It, yeah. it sort of fascinates her. It repulses her. Um, she she just wants to see what it's like for a day to spend it, you know, in these outfits. She spends all of her time and effort yeah, getting for um, other people. shopping for a relative mm. pittance for the amount of shit she's putting up with. Mm. Um, and, and obviously looking absolutely stunning in sort of these couture outfits that were clearly designed to fit her in the first <laughs> yeah. place. Um, and, and in many ways, it's, it's Kristen Stewart in a role where she's really stripped back. She's feels like she's largely makeup free. Her hair is usually sort of tousled mm. or, you know, greased back or whatever. She um, is seen nude or semi-nude a few times, mm. but it's never done in a way that feels exploitative or... At all. Or, or, or sexualized at all. Like the first time we see her topless, she's actually having a scan Mm. Uh, for her arc, her heart yeah, yeah. condition, see if she's okay. And the second time is when she's getting changed into this couture yeah. outfit, and it's just, it's just what you do. It does, it, it's not contrived nudity. It's just what you yeah, do yeah, in yeah, the yeah. circumstance. You know, it, it, it works on sort of quite a few cool levels. It almost feels like this movie and um, was made for her in the way that it fits her natural unease, which. She's brought to nearly everything she's yeah. done. It is one of you know her sort of star sort of move is that kind of uneasiness, and that this movie is almost completely constructed for her to exist within, sort of similar to The Matrix and Keanu Reeves, who was had that vacant "I don't know what I'm doing" thing to his performances. Yeah, and The Matrix is built around a guy that can do these things with a. I don't know what's going on, yeah. <laughs> kind of, you know, things so it fits, and so that's why, you know, he's he's an acceptable actor in that in that movie and sort of not in others. So that's what I really sort of found super interesting is her being aware of, sort of the, you know, the strengths that she can bring to a role. As you say, when great pains are done for a lot of it to kind of uglyfy her up is wrong, but you know, sort of as you say, the hair and no makeup and. Those kind of things, but of course, the subtext is she looks fantastic in in almost every sort of instance. Um, it's <clears throat> have you seen the clouds of Sils Maria? No, the not movie no. that came before. No. Um, I've only very frustratingly watched a bit of it, but we started it like late, and then we're like, oh, we'll sort of cut this off and go to bed, and we'll pick it up. But we sort of never picked it back up again. So I've seen like a third of it. Right. Effectively, it's really good, and it's similar to this. That's sort of her helping someone, but the dynamic is much more on the relationship between the two, whereas this is not really about that relationship at all. She's a sort of a MacGuffin or whatever, the, mm. the, the celebrity person. We see her like once really like properly. Um, she's moving into this period of doing stuff that works for her. They're not massive movies anymore. Mm. Uh, or off, obviously, after what happened with The Huntsman and The Affair and that whole bit of yeah. it. And this is... She has left that sort of sphere. You don't really think about her in in that way. I suppose you kind of 
I'm interested. Do you think that she's sort of pulled away from the orbit of like Twilight and these sort of things that have previously come? Do you think she's sort of standing established on her own? For me, she has. Yeah, I don't see her as Twilight's Christmas tree. Well, one, I never really watched those films. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's something that curses everyone who stars in some sort of huge vehicle. And that's the vehicle that's their launch pad. You know, just ask Mark Hamill. Um, Ask Daniel Radcliffe, you know, who, who is forever attempting to escape Harry Potter mm. and has proven himself to be very brave, a very versatile actor, um, but still, I don't think he'll ever escape that shadow. Whereas I don't think the Twilight films were good enough or actually respected enough by a wide enough audience. I think there's a certain uh, sphere of uh, you know teenage girls who've probably grown up now mm. and, and people who should just know better, really, yeah. uh, who will associate with what's she called, Bella in that or something. Yes. Um, you know, as they did with Robert Pattinson, which was obviously one of the reasons we went with this or Good Times as our choice for this episode. It's like two people who are trying to get out of the shadow of some fairly awful films mm. that they will forever be associated with. But no, I mean, this this was very much Kristen Stewart, the actor, yeah, um, doing a very good role, which you say felt bespoke. I mean, ironically, for a film that is so much about couture in a way, it felt like it was a couture role for her, you know, mm. built from the ground up because the director, I, d- I don't think the director would have had anyone else in mind yeah. for the role. It yeah, just, it definitely. feels like he's in love with her slightly. The film is in love with her. The film is in love with her and her misery. Yeah. I think, and, and her capacity for, as you say, that's that that affected nature, that mm. slightly tortured soul that just naturally comes through in her in her in her expression and her demeanor. Uh, yeah, it's it's really played mm. it's really played up in this. Um, so yeah, let's. So we we've sort of touched on, I guess, the supernatural aspects of the film, and we have talked about the the ex boyfriend who, well, apparently is murderer and, and it seems clear-cut and I actually thought initially that the supposed mystery of who the person mm. sending these text messages was was immediately obvious because yeah. the film is very spartan you know it's not you've only met like four people you've met four people and only one of them is in any way a yeah. potential suspect so yeah. it's like well of course it's the vaguely creepy inquisitive yeah, guy yeah. who asked her what her dreams were mm. you know within the space of a two minute conversation and then yeah would have, would have been the only one able to get her number and would have been the only one, you know, capable of sort of asking her questions of that psychological nature owing to the the, the brief exchange they'd, they'd had prior. Um, but there are, are a couple of scenes w- within the, 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 the pivotal murder moment mm. and subsequent arrest of him. It's yeah. called Ingo, I think, or something he's getting yeah. One of which is that when she goes to the apartment to drop off the the, the jewelry mm. and finds her body, she then hears like a, a rhythmic banging mm. and there's a sort of light and a something going on at the back that she gets freaked out yeah. by. Um, she does say quite a few times that she's convinced that this spirit that she is communicating with, if it is just one spirit, is actually quite quite vengeful and nasty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know, has has it in for her in, in a way. And then there's also a very curious scene 
when um, she receives a text demanding that she goes to this hotel room yeah. where when she goes in and the door opens, very frustratingly fades to black. Mm. Uh, another device this film uses quite a lot, which is these sort of like um, fade fade to fade to blacks mid that feel mid scene. Yeah, they very rarely feel like they're at the, the where a typical film would conclude mm. and fade that. It's a it's a it's a curious editing technique that works to the film's mm. sort of rhythm. Um, but yes, so from the hotel room, we then see a ghost. We don't see anything. We see an invisible entity operating mm. a lift coming out the other side yeah. and going through the automatic doors of the hotel. We then see the exact same shots played again, but with Ingo now walking out and yeah. following the exact same route out of the hotel room. We never know what happens between him and Kristen Stewart in that yeah. hotel room. If indeed it's the same time, we don't even know if that's the case. Um, but he leaves and there's some kind of brief shootout, I think. Yeah. Very brief shootout, and and he's arrested and fesses up to it. Mm. The end. Kristen Stewart is absolved of, yeah, yeah, of any yeah. responsibility after being interrogated by a, by a copper. Um, that I don't know if that is one of your examples of the way that the film sort of twists and mm. subverts your expectation. This, which is like, oh, is it this murder mystery? Oh, it wasn't you. It was him. He confessed the end, and that you know, yeah, that that murder. It plot. makes it mundane. Yeah, the re- the reveal of it is is very mundane. Yeah, in that it's oh, it was him after all. Okay, like let's let's crack on. Yeah, it doesn't hang around in that area, and but it leaves a really nice subtext. Like was that him bringing her to the hotel? Is he trying to frame her for? the murder of the yeah. celebrity. But also, uh, I guess what I was implying before is Chris Stewart has these moments and there's that moment with the ghost where we're still left in doubt mm. as to, was it him? Yeah. Was he possessed mm-hmm. by this vengeful spirit? You know, is there is there another force at work that's basically trying to fuck up Chris yeah. Stewart's life that's beyond this guy? He drops these sort of hints that, you know, he's about to tell Kira that, She's not gonna dump him, yeah. Which obviously sounds very forceful and is a real hint at like, mm, you know, definitely. It's is a roundabout it? way of saying I'm gonna fucking kill her. Um. So so yeah, I, I kind of thought, oh, that's very obviously him. But there's those sort of additional scenes around mm. that, and I guess the the resolution of the film as well, um, really left question marks. Um. Obviously, the other question mark was the scene towards the end where we think we're seeing her brother. Yeah. Sort of. Oh, we're definitely seeing the out, brother. Out of focus. That's one of the things that we've got to accept, right? Like floating past yeah, with the yeah, glass yeah. and yeah. then smashing it, which was done really well. Yeah, like really like out of shot, right behind her. Yeah, and you're like, oh, there's something. You know, there's it just is done really the way it, it leads to. It's the very, art. it's very unsettling. It's yeah, like I found, really it, I found cool. it really unsettling. It really sort of lingered, gives me sort of sort of chills and the fact that she still didn't see that as the sign she's been waiting for the sign all this time she's been you know putting her life on hold she's been living in this kind of limbo doing a job she doesn't like dealing with this guy all of these things all basically the reason she doesn't get the hell out of there and go back to visit her boyfriend is because she thinks that she's waiting for the sign and when it comes she misses it it's just so cool but it's it's also i mean you know you hit the nail on the head there it's like she's living her life in limbo because Mm. she's fully expecting her brother to be in limbo waiting for the sign and i think he he, at that point is just kind of saying get the fuck on with it (laughs) honestly just leave it um i almost 
thought the film would end at that point. Mm. Like that that sort of almost tragic Yeah. Tragic comic Oh you missed Yeah, you, you missed, missed you, you missed him. That was yeah. your sign. Um although to be fair to the brother, I mean it's a bit of a dick thing. You, you know, she wasn't facing the right way. You, you know you know you had your chance. Yeah, come you know on. what she was doing. Well he does it again, right? Oh does he? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> apparently he goes can follow you all the way to some hills outside of Marrakesh. Yeah. But um but is it? Because then he goes in, then you get this this scene that's reminiscent of the um the sixties French seance film that she right. watches earlier on yeah, where yeah. The, the ghost talks yeah, exclusively right. through these sort of rumbles, yeah. these knocks. Um and she uh she asks questions about whether it's her brother, mm. whether it's not her brother, whether he's in pain or being harmed, or he's yeah. not being harmed. And she's just getting like non answer after non answer, whether it's yeah. like is one is one for yes, two for no, silence for what does that mean? Yeah. You know, and it's getting frustrating and then her her final question is like, oh, is, is it coming from me? And it's like, yeah, yes. And that and that's the suggestion that actually it's her inability to move on, her her grieving, her I, I guess her anger mm. and everything is now becoming manifest by spirits that are attuned to her emotions mm. because she's a medium she can channel these spirits and if yeah. you see in that house and that ghost comes out the vomiting ectoplasm ang- angry banshee <laughs> ghost yeah. thing that's probably a spirit that's very reflective of the vibes that she's giving out and the vibes she's creating are sort of summoning these she's yeah. not summoning beneficent spirits yeah yeah she's summoning like angry frustrated mm. ones and more often not you know as, as the rule tends to go like pe- ghosts are ghosts because they've got unfinished business yeah and so is she and so she's almost a kindred spirit with these ghosts, and she's only really attracting bastard ghosts. I'll <laughs> um, call I'll call them. Have you? Um, it reminded me of another movie. Have you ever seen Unfriended? No. It's actually. Can I just read? There's a sequel to that coming out pretty I soon. No. Is that the one that's done exclusively on a computer? Yeah, completely screen? done on the computer yeah. screen. So it's a Mac. I think it's a Mac. Yeah. They're using. Sort there of is a sequel. Chat, it's just so. been shown at South by Southwest. Oh, amazing! And apparently, is a massive improvement on that one. It's it's a real surprise surprise movie, and the way that it links to this movie is through the use of text and the response and waiting, and it's a it's a vocabulary that we are now all so familiar with. Mm. We use you know I am and chat all the time, um, and the way that it works with that and like little things about. So the movie Unfriended is t- taken from uh, the screen of. Uh, girl that we see through uh, video chat so we know what she looks like we know what her friends look like but it's just so well put together that this all takes place on the screen and you don't get bored it does it really well um but the sort of inherent sort of drama that you can create just by that you know the text and waiting for the response to come through um playing with that unfriended did that really well yeah. and the scene that really reminded me of that was the one um was the one in the hotel where she had turned her phone off and then she's getting the the sort of text come through oh it's like of, i'm five minutes I'm away, five minutes I'm, away. On your landing. Oh, I'm on your landing and that kind of stuff and just the way that it manages to wrap up sort of this tension yeah really really quickly it sort of reminded me of that film, and Unfriended is kind of is flawed um, more than this, but it, it it reminded me of that, and I, I do recommend it. It's 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 worth watching, and I'm definitely going to look out for the second one. And again, that that would have um, 
that that room in the hotel, you know, that would have been where a different film, I won't say a lesser film, mm. because, you know, this isn't a horror film, but that would have really ramped up the tension. You know, you would have had the strings going full crescendo at that point as, you know, she looks at the door and stuff. And, mm. and he doesn't really do that. And it sort of no. deflates. She just has a note that says, go back to that hotel room and does it really well. The the other film that I, I thought it would be a com- good companion piece for this is a film I saw last year called A Ghost Story. Oh yeah, I haven't seen this. I was um, with the Rooney Mara, um, Casey Affleck one, because the executions, obviously the story, and the execution is quite different, but the, the the central sort of theme of somebody dying and being able, unable to sort of let go and move on, mm. it's it's sort of the counterpiece to this, where she's someone who survived as one half of a close relationship and refuses to move on mm. um, in you know in her life while I guess what we don't see is that her boyfriend her boyfriend her brother in the spirit world going just fucking get on with it yeah 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 a ghost story is the opposite in that you see the ghost sat there just observing mm. for an incredibly long amount of time I won't ruin it for when you watch it but incredibly long amount of time just watching and observing what's going on with um, with his now widow mm. um, and and beyond. Um, but it has that same sort of um, mournful sort of elegiac quality where it's it's um, it, it's it's more about dealing with death expressed through the supernatural rather than it being a film about the supernatural. Mm. I think both those films share that in that the supernatural element is taken, it's read, it's there, um, but it's no big revelation. It's not played for any sort of thrills or shocks or laughs or anything. It's yeah. just, it just happens to be part of that film's texture. Mm-hmm. Naughty Casey, eh? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, he just spend most of the film just stood under a white sheet. So, you know, that's... Potentially a way that potentially a way that more disgraced actors could find their way back in Hollywood, just completely, you know, just as part of the furniture and not having any other interaction with the other actors. Well, in in no way am I saying they connected the idea of Mel Gibson as a wardrobe. It's (laughs) the the Woody Allen is the hat stand. Now go on. The perceived time for people to allow someone to do something wrong then sort of warm to the idea of them coming back. So obviously Kirsten Stewart obviously like cheated on, you know, there was a big thing in, 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 in at that time yeah. of the relationship that were kind of broken up. And Which was sort of just adultery. Adultery. You know? it's not, it wasn't doing anything wrong. But what I really liked about her, and it was a shame that she kind of went away for whatever reason and, and sort of didn't do as, as big movies, um, was... I feel that Twilight was one of the first franchises of this type where the actors themselves, when they gave interviews, it kind of became really obvious that they sort of like weren't into it. Yeah. I always really liked that. So when you go to Star Wars, you know, you talk about people in Star Wars and these are other big, massive movies. They're like, I can't believe that I'm doing this. It's the best thing ever. Yeah. Like I'm having such fun. All of those interviews for the last movie in particular, Twilight, they just look so like 
pissed off. You yeah. know? Just like, I want this to be over. Get this movie out. <laughs> you know? And I, I thought that was... Oh, uh, why did they have to split the last film into two yeah, parts? Yeah, great. I'm so, so pleased. I've got to like, you know, carry on sort of traveling around it, and it talking is, about this. It is funny now because the same is true of um, the recent crop of DC films, isn't it? Like mm. Henry Cavill and Ben Affleck are notoriously just sort of, it's all over their face. Yeah. Like Ben Affleck in particular they, before they, that movie was like, oh my God. Ben Affleck, was, ben Affleck was like, I fucking love Batman. I've always wanted to be Batman. Yeah. And then he finds himself in Zack Snyder's Batman and he's like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Fuck's sake. Basically one step above Clooney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> poor, poor bad, poor Batfleck. Um, but we, but we, we digress. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think as we said, like Personal Shopper is a film about Christian Stewart first and foremost. Um, I did, I did enjoy her relationship with mm. her brother's um, ex, now ex girlfriend. Yeah, <coughs> I guess. Can you still be a a widow if you're not married? I see they weren't married. I think that's one of the uh, perks of being married, isn't it? I mm. think you can be a widow. And the and the other couple who you know were going to move into their house and. Mm. The fact that there was a degree of um, respectfulness. I, my initial thought, again, which would, I think other films would have done, is that when she reports back about whether the, the brother spirits in the house, mm. that to her face they're very sort of understanding yeah. and they get it and they believe her. But when she leaves, you kind of expect them to sort of roll their eyes and mm. go. Yeah. Case and we're doing her a favor, but they don't, they always no. kind of remain very sort of loyal, loyal to her, and um, uh, and, and 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 sort of believe. And I guess it's because they knew the brother, and as they say, a lot of them, even the new boyfriend mm. that her, her brother's ex ends up shacking up with, are all like he certainly he had like an aura and he mm. could see stuff, and he was very much in tune with it. And I guess the message towards that point is that he wholeheartedly embraced his ability to connect with the spirit world, his his mm. powers as a medium. Uh, he was totally on board with them, fully believed in it. And Kristen Stewart, I guess, was the was the cynic. She, yeah. she clearly knew that she had the ability, but sort of repressed it, I guess. Mm. That's the sensation I got That's the, from, from the way that she talked about it. And she talked about their relationship and that he was the one that believed there was something on the other side. Yeah. You know, he would have had to have been the one to die first because he's the one that you know truly believed that there would be something on the other side that he mm. could reach back to her and let her know that everything was all right over there and so she's almost begrudgingly dragged back into having to acknowledge that she's got these abilities which i think judging by her reaction to the ghost that she sees the terror with which she sees mm. it you kind of get the idea if her brother was in the same boat that he would actually be very sort of open to it and and not afraid and would have just accepted that the, that the spirit was mm. there, you know, would have attempted yeah, yeah. to talk to it, whereas this is new to her. Yeah, yeah, her she, reaction to it is like, this yeah. is not normal, this is new and this mm. is this is scary. And again, I think she also picked up the vibe that this these ghosts aren't nice. Spirits yeah, the way either. that she turns that, it was just like a little bit of dialogue or something. She was like, oh, no, you're not my brother. That yes. bit where she just, and that was so cool. Like she had kind of had real control over the, you know, Sort of the scene and the and the, sort of the tension there. I yeah. thought that was really cool. Um, changing text slightly. Go on. Referring to the fact that her character name is Maureen Cartwright. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Is the name of her character. It struck me as not not a very good name choice. But I didn't think it, she really inhabited a, being a Maureen. Yeah. You know, obviously the reclaiming of these older names for new generations and stuff. I just don't think Maureen is quite there yet. So I put together 10 um, character names from various movies. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> um, and I wondered if you want to try and guess what movies they were from Can sure you see my, uh, no I can't okay. see a screen I'm, I'm okay. terrible with film character names so. oh well there you go like, some, some, some are easy some are easy do you, so you want me to name the film that they're from name the film name the film with, does that cool, mean you're... cool sounding names in films I thought of ten and I wondered whether you, you know, a little tiny quiz you know go on then verbal kint mid oh verbal kint is um doesn't Kevin Spacey play verbal kint yep yeah. Oh, no, that's his character's name, Unusual Suspect. Sorry, yeah. before it's revealed, his Kaiser Sose, of course. One for one, you need to take your, uh, remember your score. Uh, one. Do- Dr. Chase Meridian. Oh, fuck, I know this one as well. Chase Meridian. Dr. Chase Meridian. Is it a James Bond film? No. Nope. Chase Mer- Why do I know Dr. Chase Meridian? Can you give me the actor? Nicole Kidman. Oh, is it Batman Forever? Yeah. You get half points. Yeah, half points if, if I have to yeah, get the actor. Yeah, act, act, well, that works. Um, Mr. Shh. This is a hard one, this one. Is it Crispin Glover's character? No. Oh, no. Mr. Good Shh. guess, though. I thought it was the Charlie's Angels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good guess. Um, Mr. Shh. I don't know. Give me a clue. Well, no, I'm not even massively sure they actually even say his name in the movie. That's why oh. it's quite funny. But um, it's uh, Steve Buscemi plays this character. Oh. He doesn't say anything. No. It's in uh, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. Oh, Have you God. that movie? Okay. It's a good movie. Um, a good name for a movie. One and a half. Santanico Pandemonium. <laughs> Santanico Pandemonium. Is that Salma Hayek's character in From Dust Till Dawn? Yes, well done. That's a good one. Thank well you. Done. I thought that one would be uh, too hard. Um, uh, well done. Uh, Lancaster Dodd. Oh, Lancaster I do, Dodd. I do know that one. Uh, actor. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Is that the master? Yep. Well done. Half a point. What am I on? Three and a half. Um, Three. Um, <laughs> um, Lee Christmas. Lee Christmas. Yeah, his name's Lee Christmas. Mm. No. Not the actor. Yeah. The Stath. Jason Statham. Lee Christmas. Oh, Lee Christmas. Well, it's either going to be Crank or the Transporter. Is it one of those two? No. Oh, oh. Lee, Lee, Lee Christmas is his name in The Expendables. Oh, fucking hell, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, fucking hell. Jason Statham. Jason Statham. Lee Christmas. Um, Cole Trickle. Oh, Cole Trickle. That's Days of Thunder. Well done. Uh, Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez. <laughs> um, I need a clue. Um, it is Sean Connery. It's Sean Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez. 
Nope. It's Highlander. It's oh, the character in Highlander. I think it is. Um, two more, two more to go. Uh, Dickie Greenleaf. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. Not don't even. Not one. even a Scooby. You don't want the actor. I'll give me the actor. I don't. Jude Law. Dick Dickie, Greenleaf. Dickie Greenleaf. Dickie Greenleaf. Yeah. It's a good name, isn't it? Yeah. Wasn't his character's name in AI? No. Um, Dickie, what else has he been in? That's the thing with Jude Law. Yeah. He plays a lot of films where he is mistaken for another actor. Yeah. Gattiger, it's uh, Ethan Hawke. And in this movie, it's Matt Damon. Oh, is it Ripley? Yeah. Talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah. Um, and finally... Basically Pol- a quarter for the amount you <laughs> push me into that one. And uh, last, uh, Pollock's Troy. Pollock's Troy, I thought you were going to do that one. It's Face Off. Yeah, well done. Uh, so it's a good name. Pollock's Troy, it's great. That's the, that's the, For some reason, I knew that was going to be on the list. But, oh, um, really? Is yeah. that, I'm, I'm so obvious. No, 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 no. It's just, it's a great name. It's such a great name. That's Cage's character, though, isn't it? Cage is the villain, Pollock's oh, no, Troy. No, no, it's the other guy. The guy from Jurassic Park 3. What? Face off. Yeah, Castor Troy is. Oh, sorry, um, yes, Castor yeah, Troy is his name. Pollock's Troy is the brother. The brother. Yes, sorry, you're right. Um, um, both names are great. Both names are great. Anyway, uh, that's the end of my ridiculous name quiz. <laughs> five and a quarter, I think yeah, that that's was. That's pretty good. That's strong. That's strong. That's all right. Um, good quiz. Good mid discussion. Yeah, mid discussion. Trivia deviation. Yeah. Um, going back to the director um, writer. Um, Olivier Assayas. Okay. Um, obviously worked with um, her on the movie before, and I was just kind of thinking about the role of like the writer director now, mm. and I wonder whether now we're in an age where it doesn't have the same sort of cachet as it used to. Like writer director, almost now you're kind of thinking, oh, like they sort of bitten off more than they can chew. Like why you know why <laughs> it's it's we're not as sort of sold by it as we were in like the Tarantino days where like oh writer director like. Robert Rodriguez, oh my God, you know, he's a writer-director. And then you sort of started realising that uh, maybe just stick to like, one or one, one or the other. other, you know. And I think now that almost like the low, well, not the lowest point, but this guy, you know, the dialogue is great. Mm-hmm. The, the, the sense of, you know, the context of the movie that he wrote so he knows how to film it. It really feels like they go hand in hand. I'm not mm-hmm. sure that you could have anyone but a writer director do this. I just really respect that you know that, it, that this movie is, is is made in that way. I know there are a lot of others. Yeah, it's it's like, it's, it's, it's a film that feels like, as we say that it was almost like written from the ground up for Christian Stewart, mm-hmm. and so he he must have had a picture already in his mm-hmm. head of what the film was gonna be when he was doing it. I don't know if it doesn't quite have the same um cachet as you say I, I guess it i guess a lot of the time it's a question of um legacy of heritage like mm. what's their what's their pedigree yeah in in the case of tarantino it's sort of veering deeply into a realm of self-parody right now um but i think i think for some as you say there is the, the more sort of personal the piece, the more inextricable the link 
becomes between the material on the page and mm. what's and what's out there. The bigger the film, the crazier the film, the more the two can sort of be divorced from each other. Yeah. Um, you know, the number of times that I've read that a certain film has a director attached to it and going, Hooray. Yeah. And then reading that a certain writer's attached to it and going, Ah, oh, for fuck's sake. Mm. Because um, it is all the writing. I mean, it's and it's one of those strange. Although curiously, curiously, we always seem to bring up Star Wars in every single one. Yeah. But the last, the last couple of almost yeah, the last well, not including Rogue One, but I mean, the last two trilogy mm. have, have basically been at least co-written and directed mm. by the same person. Yeah, which is which is quite interesting. Um, They've made a conscious effort to make them more indie movie-like, haven't they? I mean, JJ is established at doing both. Yeah. But Ryan Ryan Johnson seems to have come on with the proviso that he's able to make it in the way that he has done his other movies. Yeah, it's like you it's know. like um yeah, Brick Looper and mm. uh, um, Brothers Bloom. They've they've all been in, seen that one. entirely his sort of work. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think there are circumstances where it really benefits um, the the two to be separate, mm. but only on the basis that most people who are script writers aren't great directors, and, yeah. and vice versa. Some people are just blessed with the ability to be great at both. Mm. Um, some are very good at one, try their hand at another, and turn yeah. out to be not particularly adept. Um, I believe Aaron Sorkin's most recent film, which yeah. escapes me right now, the Jessica Chastain one about gambling. Molly's game. Molly's game. Yes. Um, you know, m- most reviews have said that while his dialogue still is Sorkin-esque, yeah. I mean, Sorkin-esque when you are Sorkin, but it has that <laughs> Sorkin-y, Sorkin-y quality to it. But his direction by... Uh, by comparison is actually quite flat and boring and it just shows that sometimes you need someone mm. to elevate the written material Come to just it help it sparkle mm. um, and there's also you know speaking as someone who writes a lot as a living Do. you need someone who also isn't so vain that they feel like they're the only person that can really do justice to mm. it um, one classic example for me, even though I don't necessarily think he was directly involved, it is when Stephen King sort of really dismissed Kubrick's interpretation of The Shining. Yeah. Then they developed this sort of mini TV miniseries part, which is a way more sort of literal translation of his novel. Yeah. That he that totally had his blessing. Mm. Um. What 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 are your feelings on that TV show? Uh, As a quick side, I'm not a big fan. But, no, not yeah. good, not good. And that's the problem because someone like Stephen King knows what works on the mm. page but doesn't have an intimate understanding of what works. Well, you know, maximum overdrive. It, 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 it's, it's not the thing that, that that translates that well because visual storytelling is an art unto itself and it's, you know, it's one thing to just take the written word and slap it on the screen. Mm. But the, there's so much that you have to convey that you can't do in the written world that has to be done through so many aspects of 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 of, of framing and 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 the environment and lighting and da 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 all yeah. these things that someone writing it won't always be considering. In this case, uh, in the case of Personal Shopper, you've got someone who really has the best of both worlds who writes really good 
sparse dialogue, you know, dual language as well. I don't know if his his if the English parts were translated, yeah, uh, on his behalf or whatever. But it doesn't necessarily feel like a foreigner's dialogue, mm. you know, no, translated to English. It feels naturalistic in on 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 both sides. Um, it just so happens to be someone who can also really fucking direct a film yeah. as well. An, an author doesn't have any limits. He just writes as much mm. as he needs to, and he devotes as much time as he needs to to character development or just you know or just general description. Uh, and so much of that has to be carved out and and turned into this lean sort of product. Um, you know, one of my all-time favorite films, Akira, mm. is adapted for the screen by uh, Katsuhiro Otomo, who wrote the manga. The manga mm. stretches to thousands of pages. Yeah, it features characters and events that don't exist in the film. Yeah, um, key characters. So, a character called Lady Miyako in the manga is actually one of the test subjects mm. in the. Uh, in the anime, she's just seen briefly as a sort of religious cult figure right, right. who slides their death when Tetsuo destroys a bridge. Mm. There's a there's an entire uh, there's a character who uh, I can't remember the name is this burly lady who plays a real sort of pivotal part in the film right. who isn't in the film at all. In the manga, Akira actually comes back to life and is worshipped as a you know as, as, a, <laughs> right, as okay. a boy. Yeah, and yeah. Tetsuo is a sort of right hand man. In the film, he's just a jar of Bits and yeah, organs yeah. that were left over after they finished experimenting on him, but still, you know, full of psychic power. Mm. That's the perfect example of someone who knows the limits of the medium yeah. they're, they're they're working in, um, and and that's how it should be. It's 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 to never be so precious about the specifics of your story. It's to identify the elements of your story that make it so strong, that make mm. it so memorable. To pick out the characters uh, without whom the story could no longer proceed yeah. along the same track. Akira is a great example of that. If you read the two by side by side, the core structure is the same. Right. The events are by and large well, the really same. And once they chop out all those other elements, it's still a very efficient story told that tells, you know, pretty much the same the same story. Um so, you know, when when Kubrick did that with the the shining, mm. he did it exactly right. Yeah. He took everything that made the shining Incredible. the story. Mm great and then added everything he knows about the visual language about the language of cinema yeah and turned it into and about great performances great casting fundamentally in great casting three four people in the whole thing and everyone is yeah triple a and something else yeah. you know something else stephen king doesn't appreciate mm. you know that that that's it um so yes i think writer director is a it's a very double-edged sword. It's a double-edged sword. It's um, it, it it could be the hallmark of of confidence, mm. but it could also be the hallmark of arrogance. Can I just tell you my uh, my favourite Stephen King story? For yes. Sure. Um, when so he's obviously a, a alcoholic uh, for periods of his life. Yes. Um, that he maintains that he doesn't remember writing Cujo. <laughs> <laughs> It's like was written in sort of some deep funk of of alcoholism, and he, when he surfaces, his head comes back above the clouds. It's like oh, fucking hell, Cujo. 
I wish I could be that prolific. Yeah, that would be so good. He's so it? he's so enviably prolific and creative that it just it just bothers me that um, you know, that he could be in an alcoholic stupor and still and still put something out. Like if I could even write something like Cujo in my lifetime, yeah. I'd be delighted. Um, but back to another uh, writer director we referred to him uh, before Quentin Tarantino, yeah. and bringing back another thread of that we were talking about about naughty, the naughty Casey of being naughty. Yeah. Um, isn't it funny the Tarantino thing where it, it does feel as though everyone's sort of gone out of their way to try and see whether the Uma thing like wasn't quite his fault and shouldn't have been lumped in with the the, the Harvey Weinstein thing. Yeah, and then he just goes and gives this interview about um, Polanski. Like really soon afterward, you would have thought there would be someone around him just like shut. Yeah, hey, Quentin, how about mate. you just like you know just for once just like be cool man like you know and then he sort of comes out with sort of frank ridiculous remarks i mean and i'm a quentin apologist but that last <sighs> bit about like that whole polanski thing is like what are you talking about come <sighs> on man but this is what i mean about him sort of veering into self-parody i think i think he's lost a lot of um what's the phrase self-awareness I think he's. I think he's really lost self. I think he he had it to a degree in his in his earlier films, and even his sort of cameos, you know, in his appearances were kind of forgivable. You're like, okay, that's he just wants to be in his films. That's fine. But as as it's gone on, I just think his his films have just descended into a sort of a parody of what he's known for, and like he lacks the self awareness to sort of rein himself in or or just have the general wherewithal to, to just sort of look at it and go oh, this is everything I always do time mm. and time again but my dialogue is becoming more indulgent but it's not as good yeah the, the, the spills are getting out of control because I think I'm brilliant with dialogue but it's like this isn't this isn't the Reservoir Dogs mm. dinner table scene anymore mate it's like you're trying to just recreate that style over and over again in as many sort of genre flicks as you possibly can. Yeah. And with decreasing levels of, of success now. And I just think he just needs to try and not see himself as an auteur. Mm. I, I think the auteur label... It weighs really heavy on him, doesn't it? It weighs very heavily on you. But it also, if you start to believe your own hype as mm. an auteur, then you start to become this sort of immovable force in terms of what is it that makes me this what's my style what is the stamp that i can put on something how am i going to be thought of yeah and it makes you just it just makes you deeply inflexible Mm -hmm. and puts you under a great deal of personal pressure to go i've got to be that guy again um well i mean we we, you know we mentioned him last time but you know the whole george lucas thing of the being in a creative process where you have people around you that are going, oh, you don't quite have the money for that, or here's a box that you've got to work in for your Reservoir Dogs. Um, you know, he's got this incredible editing partner that obviously was good at editing down. Yes. You know, his, you know when he and, would go and off. And her absence is sorely his, felt. The moment that she is tragically out of the, you know, his sort of picture and creative process it really suffers really and will there ever be another editor that can that can do it that can control him I wonder yeah, whether... never underestimate the role of the editor in making films yeah. great 
I wonder whether um I wonder whether the Star Trek thing will kind of come off and maybe working within that framework. Like, did you did you see his thing that he wants to do a Star Trek? An R rated yeah. Star Trek. And um, but it's kind of like I want to know what a PG thirteen. I don't know why I'm saying PG thirteen. Fucking hell. <laughs> a PG or a twelve. Yeah. Rated Tarantino Star Trek film. Mm. This is what I mean about it's like even when he's tackling something like Star Trek, Discovery aside. It's like it has to bend to his will. I can only do R-rated. I've got to have yeah, my trademark sweary dialogue. And I've got to have my trademark. So, no, no, no. Why don't you try and adapt to the constraints of the genre or the, or the franchise that you're working for? Because it normally breeds, you know, creativity. You know, the, yeah. In, 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 constraints, I can, and again, I can speak for first experience. Having constraints are, it's, it's the greatest muse you can have uh when it comes to writing because it it immediately gives whatever you're producing shape mm. because it creates a frame a framework it's you know it's a bottle that has to be filled yeah and the bottle only has a finite amount of liquid it yeah. can hold and so you, you you're far more careful about what you put into that bottle mm. you don't want to spill anything you don't want to waste yeah it. yeah yeah that's the way that writing within constraints works. Um, so to kind of take us back, wrap up the film, let's take, like, let's uh, take all these take all these disparate bits, tendrils this, yeah, and... and sort of smush it back together into a, a, a tangible snowball to throw. Thumbs up. Um, thumbs up. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I hope everyone out there really, really enjoyed it. I thought it's personal I, shopper. That's the film we're talking about, by the way. Shopper. Not 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 the shining. Um, I. Again, the idea around this podcast, I'm really into the idea that someone has maybe listened to another episode and then goes, oh, what have they done before? And it pushes them to watch this movie when they might not have done. You know? yeah. And, uh, and um, if you have, let us know. I would really like to hear from I, I realise as well, now we've sort of been talking for an hour, that even though Personal Shopper sort of won... Mm. I can't remember. Did we receive any feedback? I think one person or two uh, a people. Couple, yeah, I have one in uh, the from my wife who I watched it. Oh, with, okay. Cool. And the thing that annoyed her the most about the movie is that in all her texts she did a space and then a question mark. Yes. And uh, she found that very annoying. And um, another one of my uh, my. Friends... I, I wonder if that's a grammatically French thing to do. Uh, but the other guy doesn't do it. Oh, so she she does it. That's her every little time. quirk. She, does, she has an extra button press for some reason, and it when you start looking for it, it's quite annoying. I think yeah, she because she's pressing space after every word or something, and then she's adding the question mark before. Yeah, okay. 
and also that anyone that texts that much that's still got their text sounds on their phone like must be evil basically yeah. that's the uh, that's the only other bit of feedback my I mom my, I don't know is old old people still have key, key clicks turn, on just turn it off I'm I'm nicking her phone next time she's over and t- turning that shit off uh, we have um, Olivia White that uh, oh, yeah. messaged us I know you uh, saying <laughs> it's a beautiful haunting film and uh, Kristen Stewart's harness outfit is an intense source of jealousy for me. Yes. Um, agreed. So that was quite a quite an outfit, wasn't it? That I was like, am I? Is this is this like a good outfit? It's like I don't understand. It looks really uncomfortable. Yeah. It's not you know it's not Uniqlo. There's um, a very good reason that when she puts the harness on, mm. the camera pans across and you hear her zipping it up. Yeah. Because there is no fucking way no. on earth she would be able to do that on her own. No. But then, right at the end, it obviously looks great, and you know, it's it's, it's uh, yeah, because it's got this sheer sort of transparent yeah, dress over goes, the top yeah. there, which looks absolutely stunning. Yeah, yeah. it was it was a, a very cool moment, a very cool outfit. Uh, my limited <laughs> skills at rating outfits, very good, very good outfit. Would would wear again, um, and yeah, I've I that's uh, that's it for me. It's um. I've had a few people message saying that they're definitely going to watch it, so that's why I'm kind of quite pleased. I do, I do recall one person who follows you saying that they were hoping that eventually we'd watch both films that we'd originally pitched, which were Personal Shop and Good Times, and that, that when they'd watched this, they immediately just wanted to talk about it. So it was, it was quite an interesting one when we ran the poll. Um, and Good Times uh, was well ahead for a spell. It wasn't was it? well ahead for for, for a spell. And um, and then a few people were messaging us and messaging me and going, oh, actually, personal shopper's going to be, you know, sh- should should be a cool one. And I was kind of annoyed. And although nothing stops me watching the the other one, I I'm really pleased that I got round to watching this. Yeah. And I'm definitely going to go back and watch the Clouds of Sils Maria. Yeah. Um, Sils Maria. Yeah. I mean, this is this is another one of those films that. Um, I watched it. I watched it alone last night, and it's not the kind of film I would have typically gone. I'm going to eat my dinner, mm. just flick on, you know, quite a, a ponderous story of grief yeah. and loss with, you know, supernatural elements and the, the odd bloody murder. Um, but I'm glad I did. I thought it was going to be a mumblecore yeah. about a girl, you know, like lost in translation or something like that. That was my feeling going in, and I try not to watch trailers if I know that we're going to do a podcast yes, about yes. it. So again, right from the start, I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I stayed entirely clear of anything. I did know that it had supernatural right elements to it. That's about all I knew about the film. Mm. But beyond that, I was I was going in completely dark and. I've thoroughly enjoyed it as a result. Um, I'm trying to do that more. I have a tendency, I think, mm. as a lot of a lot of us do, is to overread um, about films. And as you say, you know, you watch trailers, you go, "Well, that bit hasn't happened mm. yet," which removes all sorts of drama and peril and whatever else you're supposed to experience, and even even laughs that you're supposed to experience during a film. So, um, yeah, I think I think where possible with films that we watch down the line. Mm. Uh, on this, I am going to try and just not read a single thing. I'm yeah. actually very glad because I did go back and obviously read a few reviews after watching the film. Yeah, and so many of them just uh, 
to return to your very very early point is like how do you talk about a film like Personal Chopper without sort of going into too much detail about it and it comes down to the ego of the person and how much they you know put their self importance on the review mm. as well like it is it is a sort of inherent problem yeah but it's, it's it's a very it's a very tricky film to discuss without being able to sort of talk about the events you can talk about how well shot it is how chilling it is at moments how enigmatic it is at moments how tense, how you know, how brilliant the central performance is, um, but yeah, you you really would have to steer clear of pretty much everything that happens. This is not a film for which really, I guess, spoilers would matter. You know, you could tell someone the events of the film, and they still wouldn't really be no. any the wiser. Yeah, because it is, it is down so much down to the tone. Yeah, of it, and and a talk of of inherent problems is that when you've got Netflix and you've got Amazon, we, the times that you'll go, oh yeah. Well, remember to watch that and you may put it in a watch list and you just like never get around to it again and that this is an, another film obviously because of the in the mundane title and what they're trying to set themselves out to do it is a film that for me would have been a prime I'm just going to go buy this another yeah. one for me is Kill List yes um, oh, you've, you've seen film. that right yeah. I've got it on my thing and I go buy it every time and go oh yeah I'll get around to watching that and then and or like oh, man, I'm talking do, to films with weird ambiguous endings man Kill List, what a film. No spoilers, man, no spoilers. No, no, uh, I, I, I'm a big Ben Wheatley fan. So, yeah. Yeah, um, so it's a film I'm glad I watched. That's yeah. that's my that's my basic summary, is that I thought it was, as I said, it was just deeply original. Mm. Uh, it's, it's just, if there's one word I'm going to level at it, it was just original. I think it had a lot of, you know, strange flourishes throughout mm. it, just in terms of... The way it was edited, yeah. and the, the way it was shot, and the way that events transpired—it it was just all sort of very unique. Um, yeah, it was all sort of very unique. Just end it there, full stop. Full stop. Um, before we wrap, before we wrap up, um, it's the first podcast that will come out since the Oscars. Mm-hmm. So I thought just to quickly uh, talk about that because uh, we've had a conversation before here about. Um, Shape of Water winning, um, best, winning picture. best Picture and uh, Best Director, but Best Picture in particular and the idea of that is so difficult to sort of taking away the... First and foremost... The Shape of Water is a very suitable title for um, the process of voting anything the best. Yeah. <laughs> but if you believe that something that wins Best Picture gets a sort of more of a spotlight and more people go to yeah. see it so that's the value of it effectively I was yes. really pleased that more people are going to see um, A Shape of Water than they normally would that's why I think it's kind of a win and I went back and I looked at the last five best picture winners and they actually pretty much for the last five years haven't been anywhere near my sort of favourite film of, of, right. of, of that year so we've got Shape of Water that's kind of an exception I really did like it Moonlight very good movie, not still not, haven't not seen my favourite. Um, Spotlight, I found quite difficult to watch, um, mm. but yeah, okay, it was pretty good. Birdman, which I really did enjoy. I did like Birdman a lot. Um, and 12 Years a Slave, which means it beat of those, uh, Not it's not quite respective years, but The Wolf of Wall Street, which I loved, Arrival, Mad Excellent. Max, Fury Road, Amazing. and Manchester by the Sea. All of those movies, to me, were 
better better movies <laughs> in, in, in that kind of side of it. And um, my, my last point was I had a stupid thought about these movies because it's been admitted that some of the Oscar people, when 12 um, years won Best Picture, some of the people admitted that they voted for it like, and like hadn't seen it. And um, that's just the problem seeing so many films or whatever inherent in the in the voting process. Yes. I thought, what if someone did a sort of worthy film, had this like amazing premise, half an hour into the movie, it just stops and just goes, hey, everyone, like if you've made it this far, you get to watch this like really fun, like sort of soft porn or something. Or some <laughs> like, you know, really like cheesy action movie or something. It's like, but the secret is... Don't tell anyone, you know, like, and so everyone's like, oh, yeah, I've seen this incredible movie. And you're like, no, you haven't. Cause half an hour in, it turns into Yeah, so the trailer is only the first half an hour. It's all positioned Everything, this film. every bit of advertising for it, all the reviews of it have to be in on, yeah, in on yeah, it. Yeah. Everybody that watches it have to be in on it. Like halfway through, it turns into like the room or something, or just something really like <laughs> or Roadhouse or something like, really like entertaining sort of fluff. But you have to keep the secret. I think I think the age of ever being able to do that is sadly gone. You know, like um, when when Psycho mm. originally came out, that all the tagline was just like, "Whatever happens, don't tell mm. anybody the twist. Yeah. Don't tell anybody what happens." Um, but yeah, if it was if it was audacious enough, yeah. But like, how long could people keep a lid on that? Wow. Well. That's to, the thing. To, you, would, you would all have to, to be all to in. Fuck on it, over I, think the, it would I mean, be great. you'd have to have like a global. It, it would almost be like you have to sign some. But the yeah. problem is, all the circumstances leading up to the viewing of the film that would prevent anyone from saying anything about it would be so intriguing <laughs> that that no Academy judge wouldn't sit through the film because they'd be like, "What the fuck is this? Yeah, What's yeah, going yeah. on? What's going yeah, to happen?" Maybe it'd be a victim of its own own hype. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I, I do, I do dig that idea. Um, so uh, we we usually close out with um, uh, our other recommendations, don't we? What's what else is on? Oh, the no, I've, I've got one, one, one thing. Oh, Sorry. Man. Okay. Uh, ne- next Bumper. on. Next on. Um, have you ever heard? Um, sticking with the Oscars, have you ever heard of the John C. Riley Award? No. This year was the first time it's been won since. Uh, John C. Riley in 2003, and it's an award that's only been won 14 times in total. And it's if you are in um, three Best Picture nominated films oh, that right. same year. So John C. Riley won it for, uh, he was in Chicago, The Hours, and Gangs of New York. That oh, year, wow. Okay. And they were all nominated. And this year was, um, I wonder if you uh, know this guy, is Michael Stuhlberg. He was the um, doctor guy in The Shape of Water. The guy that looks a bit like a kind of ugly Joaquin Phoenix a bit. Oh, right, yes, okay. Yeah, that's my description of him. So he's in uh, Call Me By Your Name, huh. the, the Post, and Shape of Water. Wow. So he's the, um, the this next, year's recipient this of the John C. Riley Award. John C. Riley Award. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you would find uh, interesting. John C. Um, Riley. One of my favourite uh, um, underrated comic actors. Yeah, he's great. And um, I saw another thing online to digress even further. Digression on a digression is uh, somebody was said to make a f- list of films that would describe you entirely, like eight films or something. Right. Someone were to like watch 
those movies, they would sort of know a bit about you. And I was thinking it's quite a difficult one. I haven't made the full list. But um, I think like Step Brothers would be in there. I just I don't know what it is about that movie. I just find it so funny it's from hilarious. like beginning to end, and the John C. Riley is so funny in that thing where, where he calls him a, a curly headed fuck. It just <laughs> makes me laugh. Like it's just such a direct line to my to my uh, sense of humor. Don't know why. Um, anyway, um, a quick a quick thing a quick. Uh, another aside before we go to our recommendations. Alex is. I've done lots of crazy agenda. Today. Yeah, Sorry. go on. It's yeah. no, good. It's good. Is, um, I'm not been... used to going to podcasts and pages. It's like it's not. It's sort of anathema to me to go into a podcast and not not have a clue what's going on. But oh, I quite okay. enjoy it. Yeah. Okay, I'm trying cool. to second guess you. I'm like, I, I shouldn't bother. I should just well, let you lead the way. Online, there has been an artist rendering of John Boyega as Blade. Yes. Um, I don't whether you've seen. I have that. seen that. Yes. And he has almost immediately said not know or that you know that should be snipes got me thinking of some actors that could do it uh but they're out of the running because it's going to be a superhero film we've got to take other actors that have been in superhero films already so you can't have daniel kalua in um black panther in black panther um can't have chai Age of four, yeah. Because um, uh, he's um, in Doctor Strange. Mordo, yeah. He's going to be Mordo, so he's going to be back. And obviously Idris, who I think would be three people that could potentially do or it. Or be Blade, yeah. Could I'd, be, I'd so. Know. Yeah, Idris Elba wasted on the Marvel Universe, really. He would be great as that. But, you know, if it, he seems to be the answer to all, all answers, like who should be Bond, who should be, you know, like Blade, like, you know, Idris. So, yeah, so kind of looks... Uh, can't, can't even have Cheadle. Can... Can't have Cheadle. Um, could have Terence Howard. Terence Howard was one, although potentially get, it would be an older player. I think he's great. Wasn't Terence Howard the original War Machine? Yeah, but he, because now it's Cheadle, is he allowed back on the market? Maybe. Uh, okay. Uh, Donald Glover, only a little part in Spider-Man. I, yeah, but he's kind of critical because he's Miles Morales's uncle, is it, or cousin? Miles Morales is the... Other Spider-Man. There's a black Spider-Man called oh, Miles right, okay. Morales, and he is the Spider-Man in the upcoming animated Spider-Man film. I don't know if you've seen the trailer for that. No. And uh, the multiverse one, the Spider-Verse. It looks fucking brilliant. Really okay. cool art style. So, um, so we can't have him. Can't have way. can't have Glover. He's he's My, uh... in his own in his own way a sort of pivotal part of of that universe. My. Um... Of bromance with him cannot continue for this, but I've, at least I've got him in. Um, it's quite a difficult list to come up with. Uh, LeBron James, so, kind of stupid, but he was very good in Trainwreck. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, is he too tall to be Blade? Yeah, I don't think Blade's lanky, is he? No, he would know. be like this towering. No, um, uh, I've got a few. There's O'Shea Jackson Jr., who I thought was yes. really good. Yeah, in, he was. Um, uh, in... Um, the Straight out of Compton. NWA movie. Yep. So he's one of my, uh, he could be into it. I thought he was very good. Had a good good power to him. Um, and then I have some older actors. That is it Gary Dowden, the guy that was in um, the worst, well, no, depending on your view, Alien Resurrection. The guy oh. with the dreads. Yes, yes, yes. CSI. Yes. Yep. Um, he's getting on a little bit. Uh, um, but he potentially, I quite liked him in, he was one of the bits I did like about, about Resurrection. Resurrection. Yeah. I thought he was quite good. Um, uh, is Will Smith too old? Yes, I would um, not have Will Smith as Blade. That just 
That would suck. No, that? that would, that would suck. suck. Yeah, that would absolutely suck. Um, yeah, and then obviously uh, Will Smith being too old. Um, Gary Dowden is also forty eight, and Wesley Snipes is fifty five. So unless they do Old Blade, oh blimey! I'm sure there are other cat. I'm sure there are other actors, but yeah, there's a few that I. Of put course, right? Yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to think like what I've watched recently that has any. Um, Strong sort of central performances mm. from from, from black actors. Yeah, uh, particular energy. What about Omar from The Wire? What's his name? Michael something. Um, Michael K. Williams. Nah, he he wouldn't work. No, he wouldn't work either. The guy who the guy who played Marlo Stanfield though he might be. <laughs> uh, Jamie Hector. Yeah, he could be played. Yeah. Actually, no, no, he, no, he, no, he couldn't. I think LeBron, I think, is our choice. LeBron, <laughs> LeBron. Oh, no, 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 uh, O'Shea Jackson. Uh, so hang on, why, is, why has um, why is John Boyega ruled himself out of it? Because he says he's attached to a character. I think the rumour is that he's attached to someone. And oh, really? Green Lantern, and he laughed it off, and asked him about um, Blade, and he said... No, no, no! I can only see, um, I can only see Snipes doing it. Oh, really? So it could be deflection, could be whatever, but it just kind of got me thinking about, you know. Oh shit! So the other guy I was going to suggest, it was also straight out of Compton who I liked, was Corey Hawkins, who played Doctor Dre. Right, right. Um, he was in Kong Skull Island, but it turns out he was in fucking Iron Man Three. <laughs> he was just some random, just random guy. Maybe, oh, maybe can, opposite. You could do it. You can have random guy. Yeah, you you can't just. You can't have a sort if Chris, of a, if Chris Evans role. can fly about the place, he's the exception. Yeah, yeah. No, he was. Uh, no, he's also. But he was in Twenty Four Legacy as well. Um, yeah, he's good. He's good. Yeah. I, I could actually see him. Yeah. I'm going to say Corey Hawkins. Okay, my, he's nice. my pick. Very nice. Um, and yes, now this is the section of the show where we talk about maybe another little to watch. Yes. Um, item. Do you have yours this week? Yes, I'm still going through my archive of, oh, yeah. of, of stuff I've watched. Um, this time it's a show called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Okay. Uh, on Amazon. Right. Which is a um, it's a sort of dramedy series a, about a very well-to-do um, Jewish lady who's ostensibly in a very happy marriage right. in the 50s. With her sort of almost stereotypically uptight and uh, screwy sort of family. Mm. Um, and then various events conspire to send her perfect life crashing down yeah, yeah. around her. Uh, and she basically discovers one night in a drunken state that she's a natural born stand up comic. Right. Um, but her material <laughs> is at complete odds with her prim and proper appearance. She's got an absolutely foul mouth, and basically, it's her her material accidentally because she didn't know she didn't stand at the time is 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 basically autobiographical. It's just right. her talking about how shit her life is, but she gets the audience in fits. She gets spotted by a um, very grumpy owner of a of the club that she's at yeah who's played by um alex borstein better known as the voice of lois in family guy i believe right. um who is also great as an incredibly fucking crotchety mm. 
Um, I'm, I'm assuming she's playing a very butch lesbian. I'm not going to make any aspersions, <laughs> but because it's the 50s, yeah. everyone thinks she's a man yeah, and yeah, calls yeah, her, yeah. you know, thinks she's a boy and all this stuff. That's that's always sort of played. Um, and yeah, it's 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 really about um, her trying to come to terms with the fact that she is a naturally gifted comic talent. Mm. That's completely at odds with the expectations of her family because she's a mother of two. And, yeah. Um, there's a certain expectation because it's all about, um, you know, being part of the Jewish community and, and being seen in a, in a particular way. It's got loads of amazing supporting turns. Um, her dad is brilliant. Tony Shalou plays her father. Right. He's really good. Um, sorry, the, I'm trying, I don't want to mispronounce her name. The, the girl who plays yeah. Midge, Midge Maisel, Rachel Brosnahan. Nice. Um, is excellent when she does get into her swing, when she does the stand-up parts. is, is fantastic. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, Alex Borstein, um, Kevin Pollock's in there as mm. her sort of on-off ex-husband's okay. um, dad as well. He's the best I've seen him for absolute years. Yeah, yeah, it's also cool. the only thing I've seen him for years as well. Uh, and also, because there's a sort of crossover into the real world of like um, New York stand-up, a guy called Luke Kirby plays Lenny Bruce. Oh, right. Uh, oh, who, yeah, cool. who plays a kind of a pivotal part in helping oh, her excellent. become a comic, and he plays him really well, just really fucking smooth. I guess like almost sort of like swingers era Vince Vaughn, okay, sort of swagger oh, and, cool. and and just cool. Um, and it's great. It's just a really nice kind of period piece that deals with a really unexpected topic and really shows deals with issues of class and race and mm. and also just the rise of the sort of alternative comedy scene and as someone who's a massive fan of stand-up comedy yeah um it's I, I, it was a it was a really great show for me um speaking of stand-up comedy mm. i'm going to uh have another quick one have you seen the have you seen tambourine yes the, the chris, uh, rock chris rock special thing? yes what do you think um i actually wasn't enamored with it yeah <laughs> um yeah, I, I think I need to finish watching it because I actually got fatigued by it. Oh, man. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, you've got to watch the end. Because... It's really good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because I, it didn't strike me so much as a routine that was going for the the laughs. It no. was it was It was the routine of just a really fucking angry man. You know, so, so you're catching up with him, like, you know, he has obviously, like... That's what I mean. Has happened. That's you know? what I mean. He's, mm. he's, he's really sort of matured into his middle-aged dad yeah. card. Um, you know, let's go back to the naughty people thing, Louis C.K. Mm. He's someone I think does a very good job of not being romantic about having kids or has ever let having, whoever let having kids yeah, yeah. neuter his material. There are so many comedians who just absolutely lose their way the soon that they can mm. find him and it's like they're like an anti-muse and they just destroy them. Yeah. Uh, everything that used to make them great. I thought um, some of his kid stuff was okay. No, no, no I'm not saying it's mm. not. I, th- I think I'm just saying that I, th- I thought Louis C.K. at the time was more successful. Yeah. But this this seems more angry, and yeah. he's sort of channeling that into his material, and it's but it's it's so rage filled that I sort of also had that sort of you know that righteous anger that he's mm. feeling as well. I found myself getting angry on his behalf as well from what he's saying. Like I was sort of half laughing at it, but also getting very frustrated by the points he was making. Yeah. Yeah. It reminded me of when I first watched in the loop and what it dealt with, even though it was a sort of satirical take on 
how the illegal war in Iraq transpired mm. and how it was fought. It was so close to the to the bone, like mm. so too close. You know, it was almost it was almost beyond satire and, mm. and just veering into reality because of just how incompetent it was and and how it was driven by all of these events where it was just sort of forced through. Like I couldn't find myself laughing along with it because I was like, right. this is almost probably too close to what right, actually right, right. happened. Um, you know, I I thought Chris Rock's like opening salvo and tambourine was amazing. Just the, yeah. the you, you think Straight you think the police it. would just like shoot a white kid once yeah. in a while. You know, it's amazing. Like yeah. as, a, as fucking an introductory line goes, yeah, like yeah, yeah. In, in, incredible. But um, yeah, I, I found my in, my interest sort of waned as, as I thought it sort of maintained the, that degree of rage throughout and I f- that's why I find it quite fatiguing not that it wasn't funny mm. but I find it quite exhausting to watch oh, I, I think I, I think if I was in the room and as with stand up it had the energy of yeah, the room to kind of push me through not, yeah um, but yeah watch it but for sorry the, this is does, your recommendation he does bring it back up he does bring it back up no I was, I was interested to to hear because um, you know I really I really liked it I do agree that he does you know but he does his thing of where he takes you down, down and then brings it yeah, yeah. back up for the end so it's worth watching the end and so yeah that's Tambourine uh, on, on Netflix um, that was Alex's recommendation my recommendation <laughs> and Dan's filling in <laughs> which, which I completely torpedo which it should be the, the, the way of it. Um, our next film, Annihilation. Yes, and uh, we're going to try and do that quicker. Get it, uh, get it out. Yeah, because um, I'm actually very um, excited to see it. Yeah, I'm really, really I'm really keen to see it. it was yeah. well as as of recording, it only went live yesterday. Yeah, I believe um, both big Alex Garland fans. I think. Yeah. Um, Ex Machina was one of my top films of whatever year it was. It was it 2016 now. Yeah. Um, and yeah, big fan of his written work. Big fan of Dread. Mm, Beach yeah. is all right. Book was good. Um, yeah. So yeah, really keen to see if he's one of these guys who's going to break the curse of the um, shouty Netflix film. <laughs> that could this could be the one. This could be the one. Um, thank you, uh, everyone, for listening. Um, if you made it here to the end, hope you enjoyed it. Well um, done. I really. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think we definitely went off on our most uh, number of tangents there. Uh, ever, which um, I think sets the record. I think we'll try and break it next time. Yeah. Um, thank you very much, Dan. It's all right. Um, like that. And um, we shall look forward to receiving you once again sometime in the future. Very near future, absolutely. Thank you for listening. Bye. Beep.